Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, March 14th, and it's our first daily podcast. To celebrate this momentous new endeavor, I'll be talking to our Puck co-founder and executive producer of this show, John Kelly. He'll be joining us every Monday on this pod to talk about our favorite subject, the media. We'll dig into Axios's plans to become a huge multi-headed media company, what Barry Diller is doing with Meredith, and because this is a media podcast after all, the New York Times. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Welcome everybody to the inaugural daily version of the powers that be and what better way to mark this occasion than a special episode, which we'll be doing every Monday. We're going to be doing a media Monday episode with John Kelly, our fearless leader here at Puck. John, how are you feeling about this uh, daily podcast? God, what a way to begin the week, Peter. I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to be with you. And I feel like honestly, you and I both grew up in a media era when Monday was the New York Times media column day. You know, it, it was it was David Carr and Jim Rutenberg. It was recently it was Ben Smith. And one reason for that is that the PR maestros and marketing whizzes who ran these companies would spend all week cooking up their story and trying to bake it and, and get it into the um, into the hands of some writer that they they trusted yet totally feared. And lo and behold, it would it would break Sunday night for Monday morning and the week's agenda and media would be set. So let's do the same thing here in audio form. I can think of no two better people other than Dylan Byers, of course, <laughs> to do a media Monday every Monday. So yeah, subscribe to Puck, everybody. Every Monday morning, John and I will be riffing on what we're hearing in media circles. Um, I want to start with this New York Times piece that that Katie Robertson wrote a few days ago about Axios, which has been around since 2017. Jim Van Dyke, Mike Allen, and Roy Schwartz founded it. It's been very successful. They've obviously pioneered the quote-unquote smart brevity format. I personally believe format and innovation in format is one of the most important things that we need in journalism. We need more people reading the news, and that means being efficient. Uh, that's one of the things we're thinking about here at Puck a lot. But this piece that the Times wrote talked about their ambitions to go even even farther than just, you know, Mike Allen's morning email and a few newsletters. They have plowed into a variety of local markets. They're covering a variety of industries. This year, they're going to pour $30 million into expanding their footprint. Sometimes when I think about Axios, I think of them as like one of the last big startups before subscriptions sort of took over media, you know? And so in a sense, they have to keep chasing scale to make money. Am I, am I wrong about that? Uh, you know, what, what do you see as, as smart in their strategy here? And what do you see as a challenge? No, I think you're right. And I think in what will become a habit of, of uh, our Media Mondays, usual disclosures, I'm close with Mike. I, I know Jim and Roy. I, I think that these guys deserve a lot more credit than they get in the industry for being, same. You know, for, for taking a chance. Yeah, same. Yeah, exactly. Um, they deserve a ton of credit. They were incredibly successful in building Politico. People forget that they are they are second time founders. They they built Politico. They did it with Robert Alberton's money, and um, they left to do it all over again to make the money themselves. I think a couple of really interesting things are at play here, and, and you're totally right. They had a massively important format innovation. I think that Axios was planning on having a paid tier before they launched. 
But I think that Axios saw that there was an extraordinary ad market that was coming into view in the early days of the Trump presidency when a number of large like Fortune 50 companies were motivated to spend a lot of money through corporate social responsibility and sort of image making advertising to represent their brands. I mean, this is an era when Donald Trump could, could literally implode a company with with one negative tweet. So they did what any founder would do, which is they saw a huge market and they, and they ran towards it and they, and they built Axios up. And one other area where they deserve a lot of credit they don't get is that they were as close to a nonpartisan or a, a Trump critical, but not like, you know, hashtag resistance era media company. Swan and Mike broke a ton of news, but I, you never felt like you were listening to Don Lemon, you know, write poetry at 10 p.m. So they deserve credit for that. I think one thing that we're seeing here because they have added a paid layer, and that was one of the news beats in the Times story. It's hard to pivot to paid, as we've seen from every single publisher that's out there. When people think something should be free, they expect it to be free. And then when you're making money from something that's free, it's very hard to pivot. I would certainly pay hundreds of dollars a year to be able to read Mike Allen, Dan Primack, Sarah Fisher, you know, Felix Salmon, et cetera, et cetera, David Lawler. But they actually probably is not in a situation where they want to sacrifice the revenue that they're making from the business to, to go through the transition to paid. So they've added a layer on top of that. What they've also done, as you noted, which is incredibly interesting, is that they're now basically a, com- a media company that has three meaningful lines of business. An ad-supported line of business that, that Mike leads and Swan and those guys lead. There is also this local business that they've started via the acquisition of the Charlotte Observer and uh, a plan that essentially puts a couple of reporters in a number of emerging cities around the country, which from an ad-supported perspective sounds like a very smart idea. Those are news deserts. Uh, I can tell you as someone who, who recently raised money for a media company, there was a ton of interest in local news, not because the investor class is, uh, feels the total obligation to, to rebuild the journalism communities there. They see a huge market and, and a ton of money. I think Axios is running at that and they're doing it successfully. And they're also a SaaS company. One of the funniest details of that Times story in typical Times fashion is they omitted the fact that David Zaslov's son, Jordan, is the one running the um, the SaaS business. Uh, and Jordan's a smart guy, incredibly smart guy, actually. That, that was a sort of dishy inside nugget for media people. But I'm sure that the SaaS play, or I would assume the SaaS play, is Axios's attempt to try and sort of copyright eyes and scale eyes their format innovation. I think they view that smart brevity format as being a potential like sort of communicative way of life and that it has a natural software play. And of course, SaaS companies are valued at, I don't know, 20 or 30 times revenue. Wait, just to interrupt, because this is where you're the the business guy and the founder and I'm still just the, the dumb journalist. What does SaaS mean for people listening? Oh, Thanks for stopping me. Um, it's a heinous acronym, uh, software as a service. You know, Microsoft created, you know, 20 years ago, SaaS by having Excel. and. So what would Axios do with software then? Well, I think that their view, I don't want to speak for them, but here I go. Um, I think that they feel like if they can create a software that basically, they probably already have created essentially through their like content management system, you know, what we call a CMS that helps people write short, pithy, to-the-point stuff. That's a core competency of their business. And based on the numbers in the time story, they have, they're have they projecting $100 million revenue this year, and they're valued at $450 million. So I think it was $85 million the year before. So that's like a five times revenue multiple of, for a, a large ad support business. Good stuff. Everyone's going to do really well there. If the SaaS business takes off, 
a SaaS business can be valued at 20 or 30 times the revenue. So I think that that business is already chugging along at a couple million dollars in revenue. And if they get that to 20 or 30 million, then they're going to see a massive uptick in the value of the company, which will change its destiny or, or certainly make a lot of people who are about to become very rich, even richer. Yeah, I think one thing you mentioned is is Jim and Mike are two-time founders of, of very successful media companies. Mm-hmm. There's an even more impressive layer on top of that, which is Washington, D.C., and we've talked about this a lot, is full of wonderful thinkers and great journalists, but there's really not a lot of imagination there when it comes to the kind of innovation that you hear a lot about in the other sectors of puck, Hollywood, Silicon Valley, (laughs) Wall Street, et cetera. You know, it's not a place where there's a lot of creativity going on. And these guys really looked around the corner and and built something big. And Jim (laughs) gave a quote in this New York Times piece that I thought was very on brand for him when he's talking about their expansion into local And he says, we're not doing this as some kind of romantic gesture. We are ruthlessly capitalistic (laughs) about only going into business lines that we think are going to be profitable in time. And, you know, I'm looking at some of these local markets that, look, they're already in Atlanta, Chicago, Mm -hmm. Charlotte, Dallas, Des Moines, Denver, Northwest Arkansas, conveniently the home of Walmart, uh, who will probably buy some ads. Um, But, you know, coming soon, Richmond, my hometown, Miami, Raleigh. Uh, You know, what's interesting about this to me is like, when you think about where local news is now, there's obviously the you know conventional wisdom that newspapers are are dying via consolidation. They're trying to get behind paywalls, and what's left is you have like public radio, which is right. extremely valuable. I'm a huge fan of public radio, and then like nonprofit benefactor funded newsrooms. And here you have just like a new kind of just straight up for profit model that's trying to go into some of these places, and it's hard not to root for them. Oh, totally. You made like 17 points that um, I want to just briefly dwell on for a second. The the first is uh, about Washington as a media market. It is, as you say, an institutional and institutional-minded town. And as a result, it actually, from a media perspective, has been proved to be easily disruptable. You know, when you think about the startups that have come out of there and been successful, like Politico, like even The Hill, you know, which will have a nine-figure exit, and Axios, it shows you that people who think differently can get rewarded there, which is pretty extraordinary. And, and, and Mike and Jim and Roy have been part of it twice, which, which is amazing. One other interesting detail too is, this may just be um, a bee in my bonnet, but a lot of the, what we call media coverage, it's really not our man Dylan, but, but a lot of other media coverage is really like journalism wrist slapping. And I feel like Axios endured a lot of sort of journalist wrist slapping early on because it did have this like, useful format innovation. And because yes, like it is a for-profit company as it should be. And it's capitalizing and it's building out these new marketing and tech stacks because this is capitalism and this is what they're trying to do. And there is a, um, a culture within journalism, particularly since 2008, that is very sort of 501c3 based. So I think that these guys deserve credit for really going for it. And then the, the last thing, just to, to circle it for a moment, I, I read that Evan Smith comment too. And it just reminds me like, there are going to be a lot of winners out here. And it's okay for Axios to do their thing in Austin, knowing that it's a complimentary business. It's not, it's not a zero-sum game. No one's the Google of this world that's just taking everything off the field. So the Texas Tribune can do what they do. Axios can do what they do. Austin's an incredibly wealthy city. I think there's a Gucci in Austin now. People there will be fine and, and, and well-served for it. Because we too at The Powers That Be are focusing on smart brevity. Let's take a quick break.
Welcome back, John. I want to change topics now. Something else that we talk about a lot is, and you talk about how we grew up in a certain time. Um, I used to work at CNN for 10 years before moving to Snapchat. And my parents worked in local television news and all of their friends were from that era, 70s and 80s TV news. Uh, you came up in, in magazines. And I feel like the decline of, of cable news in terms of both audience and revenue reminds me a lot of the decline of the magazines industry over the last 10 years, maybe. I think about this every day. I know there aren't many um, unwanted children of the magazine business or or, or adult scar victims um, left in, in this world. But as you know, Peter, I started my career working for Graydon at, at the I think the beginning of the end of the golden age, right? The macroeconomic factors in the early 2000s were there. The internet was growing. New streams of communication were becoming available. A new generation wanted news faster. But the money still grew on trees and we watered the plants with champagne. The thing that was clear after 2008, the beginning of the last decade, was that there were people, extraordinarily talented people, who had a certain uh, exalted status, who were incredibly good at expressing themselves through that medium of magazines. I mean, people like Graydon, Jim Nelson, Cindy Libby. I mean, these people were larger than life stars in New York media. And then when they left their stations, the brands just like stopped existing. And the thing that made them so good, it didn't yet exist elsewhere in the culture. You know, it wasn't like if you were a great movie star, you went from being on the screen to being on a Netflix show where like it was totally transferable. If you were the editor of GQ and GQ started to lose all of its money, you didn't go anywhere. So I imagine as news turns to streaming, is there more ways to connect to it? You know, as, as CNN and MSNBC mean less and less in the culture, who's going to replace Rachel Maddow? It's not going to be someone of the Rachel Maddow level. When magazine editors of that grade and status, you know, left their jobs, they were replaced by people that no one had ever heard of. And the brand sort of, you know, sank with them. So I think there was a real, probably more dragged out existential threat that it, that is playing out there. I know Dylan agree, dis, disagrees, excuse me, a little bit. He thinks that um, the pivot from linear cable to streaming is going to take a lot longer than we think here. But uh, I'm skeptical about that. Yeah. And, and as a reminder for people listening, the powers that be, like we came up with that based on David Halberstam's amazing book that I love about the most powerful figures in, in American media. Yeah. You know, um, Henry Luce at Time, Bill Paley, CBS, the Grams, the Chandlers, actually just pulled up the cover of the book. And it's funny, like the first edition of the book cover has the powers that be as a title. And then it has in small print, Henry Luce and big print time and small print, Bill Paley and big print CBS. <laughs> and like, I feel like the world that we're covering now, those things yeah. are inverted, right? It's not the brand. It's not the mothership. It's the names. And like, we try to cover it, Puck, what those people are talking about and where they're moving. And, you know, one tangential um, point here, you know, Barry Dealer's company, Dot Dash, bought basically the remains of Henry Luce's company for $2.2 billion. And they're probably going to stop printing a number of the magazines, except for like People and a, and a few others. And the economic model for that company now is really probably to extend the scale and make them service brands. And, you know, in, in a actually like sort of intelligent business way, eke out the value that these brands ha will have for the next coming decades, uh, which will be which will make them look almost unrecognizable from what they had been. And there will be some, you know, brutal decisions that, that come along with, with that kind of transition. But I'm actually of the mind that like, 
it's healthy when certain things that have been in the culture for for generations essentially exit and and new things can begin. It's unhealthy, particularly for the creative class, to think that these institutions last forever outside of academia. Um, they just don't. Mm-hmm. I mean, as a footnote to that, I think Southern Living is one of Meredith's brands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I follow the Southern Living TikTok account, and you know, get some good good recipes that. Remind me of, of home. Well, Peter Hamby, you are living the dream, man. You're the <laughs> CNN anchor who turns into the uh, the Snapchat sensation. Uh, very, very few people had the guts or foresight to see the thing coming the way you did. And I think a lot of people who still run these cable news institutions are, are heavily incentivized to make them exist longer and longer and, and prolong it. And that, that almost certainly ensures that they're not thinking about the next thing. Thank you for saying that, by the way. That's very nice. Um, <laughs> just to pivot off of that, the New York Times feels like one of those big brands that 10 years ago, you know, might have been trying to steer the ship <laughs> through the iceberg, you know, and, and they yeah. successfully pivoted to not just a healthy subscription business. They built out their crosswords and their NYT cooking app and recently bought Wordle. Uh, And a lot of that is owed to Meredith uh, over there, who's been an innovator and thinking around the curve too. But on that topic, and and I think Dylan broke this story for us, the the next editor of the New York Times is supposed to be Joe Kahn. What's his reputation? Because I'm not not in New York anymore. I mean, what are people saying about him? Will he be able to sort of keep the New York Times innovating? I think there are two things here. And I agree with you. I think Meredith Cobb 11 has been incredible. And, and the you know, she went out on a limb to spend $550 million on The Athletic, which Times is a pretty risk-averse culture. And she went for it. So she deserves a ton of credit for, for doing that. I think Joe's reputation is as a very quiet, studious guy. Unlike Dean and Jill before him, uh, Dean McCain, Jill Abramson, the last two executive editors. Um, and we should say they had, Times has not formally announced that, that Joe is getting the job, but it's like the, the worst open secret in the world. Um, Dean and Jill came through the Washington Bureau. Joe is not. Joe is a Foreign Bureau guy. And I think that the Times has uh, sort of spun that internally as um, to suggest that he has this, this international worldview. He's a former foreign correspondent and, uh, and international editor that will benefit the Times as it seeks to to break new ground in new foreign markets and grow. I buy that, I guess. You know, I, I think the bigger point that Dylan made that I really agree with is that the executive editor of the Times used to be a larger than life position, just like the biggest thing in, in media, not just journalism, like in media, you know, that, that, that this was a person that like the president had on speed dial. I think given the Times is, you know, sort of multi-stream revenue picture now, the executive editor of the Times is a massively important job in the culture still, of course, but like many jobs, it, it is no longer the only game in town inside that company. The Times has done an incredible job keeping its journalism business core to the institution and, and to keep it growing and to make it a, a central piece of, it, of its stock price. But you're right. The economic action is in buying The Athletic, buying Wordle, figuring out how guys like Sam Sifton can create the next cooking app. And, you know, essentially, like what Meredith sort of did her immense credit is both in, in her tenure as CEO and before that when she was, I guess, COO under um, Mark Thompson is they pivoted the Times to being a lifestyle company, which is more valuable in the market. But seriously, like like cooking, movies, that TV thing, watching whatever it is that I've never used. And by the way, that's what CNN is going to do. One thousand percent. It will be news on the outside and to people like you, it'll always be a news brand. But once CNN Plus really comes online I can guarantee you they'll be focused on 
this sort of like Chrissy Teigen type stuff. You know, I don't, I don't even know if she has a deal there, but if she like does the Stanley it, Tucci, exactly, exactly, the Children right. of I, Bourdain, that kind of thing. Exactly. I think I think Eva Longoria actually signed a deal to do um, a, a Stanley Tucci type show, um, and I'm sure that CNN Plus will become sort of the thinking person's Netflix. You know, to do that sort of lifestyle stuff. I remember I wrote about this for you at, at Vanity Fair for the Hive a few years ago, and I might have offended some of my former colleagues, but, you know, I, I made the point in writing a piece about format and how necessary innovation and in format is because newsrooms and journalists have lost sight of the most important thing, which is the audience. It's not impressing your peers with like labored, like $10 word, 10,000 word essays, you know, and black and white print. You know, Bourdain could sometimes do the best journalism on CNN is what I said, because he could backdoor you into learning something about the world. And, you know, even if it's, you know, well, I wouldn't necessarily call Stanley Tucci's show journalism, but I feel like there's an opportunity to highlight trends, stories, just interesting things out there in the world that don't come across, you know, with a blow-dried news anchor throwing to some reporter in the field with a microphone. Well, if you brought an alien down to earth and you showed them the cable news ecosystem, no matter what network, whether it's CNN, MSBC, News Nation, OAN, whatever, they would say, I don't get it. You talk about the same thing every single hour, but the people change. What's going on here? Like, why is this so expensive? And I just think that, like, before we get to the alien, we'll get to, like, Deloitte and McKinsey and, like, the stock market. And someone's going to be like, wait a minute. Like, this is, you know, we don't need to be spending all this money, especially if um, the, the the Trump show is over. On that note, John, I hope we gave the audience a taste of what we want this Media Mondays episode to be about. There's always something to talk about in the media. <laughs> Send us your tips and your gossip. We are here for you. Thanks, man. We'll see you next Monday. All right. Thanks, Peter. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.